I presented some information about marksmanship, right? The work that we had done on expert marksmen, essentially showing that they had brain patterns uh, that, that proved their expertise, right? And then, and then used a neurofeedback paradigm to actually get novices to look a little bit more like those experts over time. As we look at human-machine teaming, I think we're going to get to a point where we are networked as units, right? We are not just communicating with one another verbally or um, through hand gestures, but we're actually maybe potentially connected in some way so that we know each other's states, we're better able to synchronize, better able to work together as a team. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and this episode features a really fascinating conversation I got the chance to have with Dr. Amy Cruz. She is the Chief Scientific Officer at the Platypus Institute, a pretty groundbreaking organization that takes some of the most cutting-edge developments in the field of neuroscience and explores how they can be turned into practical programs that enhance human performance. Dr. Cruz talks about a notion she calls Human 2.0, what she describes as a vision of where we are headed as humans, especially in terms of cognitive performance. She also describes how that vision overlays on the cognitive demands of war and how those cognitive demands might change as the character of warfare changes. It's a pretty remarkable discussion, but before we get to it, really quickly, a couple notes. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research that we're publishing every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Dr. Amy Cruz. Amy, thanks so much for taking some time um, and and uh, talking about what I think is a pretty fascinating subject. Um, the first question, I guess, is the is the big one. Uh, what is Human 2.0? Right. So, um, Human 2.0 is really our vision of where um, we are headed as humans, particularly from the brain and cognitive perspective. So when we think about um, where we are now, we think about technology and all the information and everything that's sort of overwhelming us. And we think about the way that we really want to be, right? We want to be adaptable. We want to be responsive. We want to have better memories. We want to be able to integrate more information, do things with less stress. Um, and so for me, Human 2.0 is really that um, ability to upgrade ourselves. That's sort of why we called it 2.0, right? So the ability to sort of think, okay, where am I at now? Um, where do I want to be? And, and how can I get there? And so human 2.0 is our vision of kind of that next generation of human performance. So you said, you know, we, we, we want to be more attentive. We want to be, you know, have uh, you know, stronger uh, memories. We want to have all these. We've always probably wanted those things. What is it that what is it about this time that makes human 2.0 something that we're even talking about? Right. Yeah. So so the beauty of uh, where we're at right now is the availability of information and techniques in the neuroscience domain that allow us to actually sort of measure and figure out and assess kind of where we are on some of those um, continua and then actually upgrade ourselves or actually, you know, implement interventions that allow us to do that. And so what I'd you know, what I'd say is that we're at this point where there's been this enormous amount of research. A lot of it is applied, right? It's not just 
things that are happening in a laboratory or you know mice running on a wheel kind of things it's it's real humans um, doing applied tasks operational tasks um, and actually you know finding out ways to intervene and, and actually make them perform better so we're having this conversation at a conference convened by uh, the army um, uh, this is the modern war Institute podcast we um, uh, what does this mean, I guess, then, for from a warfighter's perspective? Right. So, um, just to you know, just to sort of anchor things, or maybe give a little context. One of my previous jobs was I was at DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, as a program manager, um, and at that time, I you know sort of coined a term that I call operational neuroscience. Right. So, taking these observations out of the lab and into the field, and so I think. When it talks, when we were talking about modern warfare, when we're talking about what's going to be of interest to the military, it's really the idea that there are um, particular aspects of the brain and cognition that are very important in in warfighting, and particularly in modern warfighting. Right? You're looking at asking people to do tasks and integrate information and integrate across platforms that maybe you know, hasn't really happened before. And so now we're looking at ways of actually increasing people's ability to handle information, uh, integrate information, decision-making, decision-making under pressure, uh, things that are really important, I think, in the operational domain. Can you talk about, um, maybe pick one of those, and what, it, what does it look like to be, to have an augmented or enhanced ability to make not just make decisions, but make good decisions uh, under pressure. Sure. So um, I think uh, one great example is um, a scenario, you know, that you might think of in a, in a shoot, don't shoot kind of scenario, right, where you're really having to integrate information very quickly. Um, we know that the brain is involved in making those literally split-second, microsecond decisions about um, friend or foe or um, other information that needs to be integrated. And so you can literally uh, train someone in terms of the visual processing that they need to, to go through to, to both track uh, items very quickly and then identify uh, what what may or may not be a threat and then make the right decision under pressure, right? So the, the way that you would build up to that is you would actually um, identify, you know, the brain signatures that may be involved in that, look at the ways that you can actually train that processing and then add the sort of pressure situation to see how things either enhance or degrade in that and then, you know, train within that space. Um, when, when you talk to members of the military and you say train that means something very specific sure um, is that what you mean is it is it running through sort of exercises repeatedly or is it something different yeah so so that's a great that's a fantastic question um i think honestly because not much of it has been integrated right now into what i would call mainline training uh, it tends to be a bit separate but it doesn't need to be, right? It's absolutely something that could be integrated into um, the classical training regimes that you would go through normally. Um, when I was at the conference and, and talking, I, I presented some information about marksmanship, right? The work that we had done on expert marksmen, essentially showing that they had brain patterns uh, that, that proved their expertise, right? And then, and then used a neurofeedback paradigm to actually get novices to look a little bit more like those experts over time with, with minimal, you know, sort of intervention. The cool thing is that um, while the neurofeedback paradigm could be done separately from 
from the training environment itself, you can do, you know, the neurofeedback intervention within the, you know, the, you know, either on the range, so you could do it, you know, in the field itself or within the simulated marksmanship environment like the EST or something like that. So you're able to actually to take um, to take people and improve their marksmanship performance uh, by replicating some of the same what you said neural patterns. That yeah, yeah. So essentially, what you do is um, experts have a very repeatable brain pattern, so they're able to um, increase a particular frequency of their brain activity over a particular area. It's very repeatable. It's it's something that when you talk to a sniper or an expert marksman, they'll they'll explain to you sort of how they get themselves into that zone. Right. That zone is a is a brain state that we can essentially measure in real time with a really simple sort of a headband looking EEG device, and you can actually give people. Feedback, whether it's um, haptic feedback, so you can buzz them, you can give them auditory feedback, visual feedback about how they're doing on actually producing that brain state. And then essentially over a couple days, they kind of learn to get into the zone with that feedback and then are able to replicate it when they go back onto the range to take a shot. Wow. So is there, is that, um, is that replicable to the full range of military tasks, do you think? Um, so I think that particular brain signature is a little bit um, more correlated with things that are kind of a, a repeatable motor activity, um, fairly not, I don't, I don't want to call it simplistic by any means, but a, but a sort of a lineup, quiet period, shoot um, sort of thing. So you're looking at uh, things that are more like that. Uh, when you look, though, at um, more complex military tasks, there is absolutely the case that there are sort of expert signatures or patterns. For example, we've done work with teams, right? So we looked at, this is actually some work that was done with the Navy, uh, looking at submarine teams. And uh, in a navigation task, you can actually see how expert teams are sort of synchronized together and performing optimally together. So while there isn't one particular brain signature that you know sort of covers all of these all of these tasks, it, there's absolutely a methodology to, you know, discover what's important, um, put a put a sort what I would call a metric or a, a measure associated with that, and then actually an intervention to to get people to to get into that state. What about something like uh, stress, like combat stress, and and you know we sure. we we we've developed over the years um, kind of a better understanding of the physiological responses that the body has to stress. Um, can can a sort of uh, an intervention in in the brain be able to um, mitigate some of the the harmful repercussions of that. Yeah, so I think um, there's been some really interesting work done on um, mitigating the the repercussions of stress. Um, there's some work that's going on now in uh, meditation and mindfulness. I don't know if you've seen some of that work uh, related to that, but that's uh, definitely something that has both a beneficial. Uh, brain impact, meaning literally, uh, you're able to calm the nervous system down in the in the instances of threat. So it's really about I think when it when you think about stress, it's really about what you know, I'd call rewiring, you know, so the the brain is really efficient, right? You know, we're sort of designed um, by nature, right to be um, very economical in our use of our energy, right? And the brain is no different. The brain is actually the most biggest energy hog of the of the body, right? And so the brain wants to do things efficiently. So it develops patterns, it develops repeated responses, right? And so one of the things that you need to do in the case of stress is 
there may be, and this is particularly applicable in a post-traumatic stress situation, right, where there's a, there's a trigger, there's a stimulus, and then what you need to do is you need to actually sort of interrupt or disrupt that stimulus paradigm, right, the, the natural response that would come after that and rewire to, you know, a new, more adaptive stress paradigm, right, so where you're, um, you're not really uh, getting the full force of the physiology and the, and the brain uh, response to the initial trigger. I think this is really important because this is something I think that we can all relate to, right, we all have instances where uh, something really you know, sort of puts us puts us on edge, um, and our brains, you know, are designed to sort of you know sense things as threats, and so sometimes inappropriately so, right? A a trigger can can induce a a, a sense of threat that really you know, sets the brain off on one direction that is, you know, as I said, less adaptive. And so what we need to do is actually figure out how to tune that, that really threat, threat detection part of the brain down uh, when we're not in a combat environment, we're not really in a threatening environment. You mentioned uh, mindfulness. And I think if, if, if you kind of picture a spectrum with mindfulness on one end of the spectrum, the other end you have, you know, implantable things that really sort of uh, impact the way your brain works. Um, we're talking about some things that are kind of in the middle here. Um, is it a spectrum or are we talk, or is that is once you get into um, artificial implants uh, that impact the way that your brain functions, is that something fundamentally different than what you're talking about? No, I mean, I think, um, I think it probably is a continuum when you think about interventions. So if I had to draw that you know, that line, um, I would probably say, obviously, behavioral interventions are, you know, sort of at one end, uh, then maybe something related to um, stress interruption and training, maybe something that you would do with measuring heart rate or heart rate variability to give you some more physiological information about what your state is. So you'd sort of, that would be a, an open you know, loop kind of perspective. You might do something from a closed loop perspective. So you might actually give someone information about their brain state, you know, let them kind of tune themselves, right? So that would be another step along that continuum. Um, certainly now uh, there's been a lot of work in um, electrical stimulation. So not just electrical stimulation of the brain, but also of the peripheral nervous system, which is shown to have some uh, beneficial impact. So that would be a non-invasive way of intervening. That's just a little step above kind of a neurofeedback paradigm. And then I would say um, probably you know, maybe you could branch at that point and say, obviously, there's pharmacological things that you could do to to calm the nervous system or augment the nervous system. And then, you know, the end of that spectrum would probably be an implant or, or something like that. What um, I'm trying to think of the best way to kind of uh, to ask this question. So if, you know, human 2.0 sounds like, okay, it's a new phase, fundamentally different. Right. Um, it's it's obviously more iterative uh, and kind of incremental improvements. There's going to be, you know, probably human 2.0.1. And <laughs> right, all, all sure, sort yeah, of, yeah. Um, but, but if we think of it as kind of the, the ideal type, you know, this human sure. 2.0 is a thing that we're working toward. Right. Um, what kind of time horizons are, are we talking about? Yeah, so, so I think for some of the things that we're looking at, um, the start is now, right? So in terms of neurofeedback, measuring things about ourselves, increasing our processing capacity, memory capacity, um, these are all things that are well within our reach. Um, so I would say, you know, from now until 
you know, maybe three years from now, right? And then I think you're going to start seeing um, the question of sensory augmentation. So as we look at a 2.0, right, we're kind of like, okay, how, how are we getting new information? How are we getting new senses? Um, as we think about the way that folks are going to start using virtual reality and augmented reality, maybe augmented reality on the battlefield, um, maybe additional sensors, maybe you start to augment yourself from that perspective. Um, maybe you can taste something that you know, sort of in the environment. Maybe you have the ability to to wear a you know a haptic vest or something where you're getting a, a sixth sense of the surroundings from additional information that's coming into your body. Um, and so that that's something that I think is sort of on that three to five year horizon as we see the integration of new sensory information. And then I think we are going to be as we look at human machine teaming. Right, we've talked a lot about um, how we're going to be networked together, and if we even think about the way that that's influenced our, our lives in, in terms of networking, social media, everything else. I think we're going to get to a point where we are networked as units, right? We are not just communicating with one another verbally or um, through hand gestures, but we're actually maybe potentially connected in some way so that we know each other's states. We're better able to synchronize, better able to work together as a team, whether that's a human, human, human team or maybe a, a human augmented team. Um, I think that's going to be a very exciting phase of uh, where these technologies take us to. What are the ethical issues of this? And, and is it something that um, the people who are, is it something, is it a situation in which the people thinking about the possibilities and the people thinking about the ethics are fundamentally different communities? Or is this kind of a responsibility of the people who are thinking about possibilities to also engage with um, ethical debates? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I think the ethical debate is a, um, part and parcel of all of us who have been who have been working in this space. Um, I I probably have a little bit of a bias towards um, encouraging our defense and military to look at these capabilities for um, enhancing folks um, in the in the both short term and long term. I think it's a big a big advantage and something where we've certainly put the research in um, as a as a whole community right not just the defense department but the larger community and so i'm excited about the the opportunities i think of course um the idea of consent um of how people um how people's information is shared how it's used um, how those things are analyzed are big ethical questions but i don't think the ethical questions should um, drive us away from uh, integrating these technologies. I think it should just be part and parcel of of how we address them. Um, it's much better to have a plan um, and be able to communicate with people, you know, how they're going to change or how their data is going to be used. Um, I think, you know, obviously we're all we're all sort of rewiring ourselves as we go, right? If I think about my relationship with my smartphone. Um, and and how much of that was sort of consensual and how much of it was was sort of forced upon me um, by the app developers. I'm one of those people that actually turned my phone to grayscale to to make the uh, the um, alerts less stimulating, right? Because that was actually something that I could do with my phone um, other than just deleting, you know, sort of everything on it. And so I, I think um, we need to be able to decide, you know, what we want to participate in individual people how much they want to to sort of you know engage in those enhancements but we're kind of we're kind of being rewired as we go right and so i think being very deliberate uh, about it is very important 
if we kind of project forward, um, you know, timelines are a bit arbitrary. We'd say let's let's say twenty to twenty-five years, because that's a that's a generation, that's a career for uh, somebody in the military. Um, if we project forward to that point and then look backward to now, what would you say is going to be the the, the most significant or impactful uh, development in this sort of you know in this space where, that combines neuroscience and um, the military? Yeah. So I think I think there's probably going to be a couple a couple things. I think. Um, we're radically going to change the way we train and and learn. Um, I'm not entirely sure that we'll be able to um, precisely learn and train for all the fights that we might be in. And so the rapidity with which we um, integrate new information, learn new techniques, procedures, other things, I think is going to change um, pretty rapidly. I think things are going to be done on the fly, right? Um, I think the idea of bringing people together um, it may be the case that in the future, you know, maybe you don't train together as a unit, you know, in person. Maybe you train together separately. Maybe you train through virtual networks or virtual reality or you meet on a battlefield someplace else. So I think I think we're going to have to think about the disparate nature of of, you know, sort of sort of where people are, how they train, who the best people are to be brought together for a particular mission. I think I think you may see some uh you know, developments in, in specialization and, and how people are trained. Um, is it going to be the case that everyone's going to be trained to a, a general level and then specify? Is it going to be hyper-specialization, speci- hyper you know, for specific um, capabilities? I think that's going to be a really, a really interesting space. Well, I mean, thank you very much. This is a, a fascinating conversation and I'm sure we could take it a lot further, uh, but we will leave it there. So thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for having the chat. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, hopefully you're already subscribed to the podcast. If not, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please take just a couple quick moments and leave us a rating or give us a review. It really is a huge help in getting the word out to new listeners. All right, thanks again. Thanks again.